He scored the hat-trick that took him to the finals. And he's missed it. It's been saved. But we've seen the hand of God in the stands. We might just have seen the hand of God. David Silva here. In amongst the legs. Brilliant composure. Ricardo steps across at the other end. Oh, that's a gift for Rebic, who finishes it absolutely magnificently. Danger's not passed. Still might be something here. There is something here. Oh, awesome. Iceland the level. Marcelo. By Coutinho. What a goal that is. Lift off for Brazil. It's Ronaldo. We started with 32 and now only 8 remain. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm Declan Herrett and joining me today as always is Andrew Connolly. Hello. Obviously, I've been going through my thoughts on the last 16 as they happened on the Daily Diaries, but Andrew, how did you enjoy the last 16? It was uh, much more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be. I anticipated a lot more cautious football to be played than was played. We did get to see a bit of cautious football, obviously, in the forms of the Denmark-Croatia match, the Russia versus Spain match, and as well as like a lot of Uruguay versus Portugal was pretty dour in terms of one, in terms of teams not wanting to play expansive open football that they maybe have played in the group stages. It was very much shut up shop and hold out. There was a lot of penalty shootouts, and that's kind of we were like, you know, in some ways we were hoping for that, but in other ways. It was kind of disappointing in that a lot of teams kind of started settling for penalties very early on in their ties. Like you could see Japan almost setting, you know, um, Japan and Belgium, you didn't know what they wanted because, you know, Belgium obviously took a 2-0 lead against, or rather Japan took a 2-0 lead against Belgium and then you were like, they didn't know what to do with themselves and then of course they got pegged back and then they were caught between, you saw them kind of playing defensive football to keep them tight and then completely losing their mind and putting I think they had eight men forward for a corner in the 94th minute yeah that was bizarre like uh, normally I would say never ever take a short corner because mostly they're pointless or whatever yeah but that was definitely a time to take a short corner well short corners aren't necessarily pointless it's just when it comes to Japan and I know I want to talk about Japan a bit more as well as, as the show goes on but when it comes to Japan if you watch that match like Belgium are blessed with some tall defenders, you know, Vertonghen, Ver, uh, Ver, uh, not Vermalen, Vertonghen, 
Vincent Company, they have the tall, I think the tallest keeper still in the World Cup is, is Thibaut Courtois. You know, they, they have a pretty good height advantage over the, I think the average size of Japanese was five foot eight, which isn't the tallest, you want to say, for professional football in this day and age. And every, they had a few corners and a few set plays during the match, and every single one of them was absolutely useless because they couldn't compete in the air and they wouldn't. They weren't playing it to feet or anything like that. So it kind of baffled me that they made even the decision to cross the ball. Why weren't they networking with smaller corners, like taking shorter balls, playing it out wide, passing around Belgium, which was really causing them trouble because for all the skill and ingenuity of this Belgian side, they're not the swiftest off the ball. Yeah, and I was disappointed as well that Fellaini or someone else that was really tall on that team, the Belgian team, didn't score a header in which they didn't even have to jump. I was really hoping that that would happen. I think it's just natural instinct at this point to continue to jump for them. I feel like Fellaini did it recently, but I can't remember who it was against. But I, I just love seeing a defender not e- or attacker not even have to jump. What did um, in the Colombia England match? Did I've forgotten his name? Mini, not Mini. Yeri Yeri Mina. Mina, I would call him Mini. Yeri Mina, the six foot five Colombia. He's six foot five, but he seems a lot bigger than that. Because he's about the same size as Harry Maguire, but he seems to just seem bigger than Harry Maguire. And Harry Maguire seems pretty big a lot of the time. Yeah, I think uh, Harry Maguire is just a little uh, bulkier. Yeah. So you kind of notice it more. Like, Yerry Mina is just very tall. And very good at his job, both defensively and offensively. Like for all, yeah, he scored three goals. He scored three goals, but he also was very good in defence. And, you know, we were... Uh, look at... Uh, the different players, and I'm, I'm trying to pull them out of my head right now. The, who was the player that did the, the headbutt on Jordan Henderson? Barrios. Barrios was like all like he was still a good defender, but he's all over the place with his discipline and not and like getting in the, the referee's face, getting in England player's face, making poor decisions, making poor tackles, still being a good defender. But then Yarimina was completely like, what would you say? You wouldn't notice him, but that in a good way during the match. That he was doing his job, he was covering his men, he was you know heading away to corners, he was heading away set plays, he was staying tight to his men, not fouling too much, not drawing cards, and you know obviously scoring the goal at the end of it. You you know that's a very, very important trait to have as a defender. Like you can't say that about anyone on, I think most other defenders in this tournament. He he's going to come out as one of the better ones, not only for scoring three goals in four matches. Yeah, he had a really good tournament, and but but it seems like Barcelona are going to be trying to offload him this summer, which is odd t- to see. Yeah, but then again, he's not getting in the team, and yeah, I don't know. The Bar- we'll talk about that in the new season. The Barcelona team is kind of they don't know what they're doing. They're in a very much a, a big transition phase that side. And uh, which should you prefer, Belgium against Japan or France against Argentina? Oh, Belgium, Japan, absolutely. It had oh, so really? much. Oh yeah, definitely. Like Argentina, France was just, you know, it had a bit of drama, but that drama was snuffed out extremely quickly by uh, the great goal by I've completely forgotten the name. The Benjamin Pavard. Benjamin Pavard. No, Benjamin Pavard. <laughs> Angel Di Maria. The more you look at it, it's like I would have had a good, good. Not me. I wouldn't have hit the target, but I would have a good go at taking a shot from there. Given that nobody went near him, nobody tried to close him down. And he was like, okay, well, I'll have a shot then. And he did, and he got the top corner. If you have that much time and space on a moving ball, you can kind of move it around to set yourself up to get the best shot possible. 
and it was a shot to nothing in fairness it wasn't like there was a pressure on it wasn't the 90th minute it was oh there's a bit of space here no one's coming at me okay I'll take my time to score it like Pavar scored a fantastic goal but then Mbappe just ended the match a couple of minutes later getting the 3-2 and I thought the contest was over at that point and he got another couple of minutes later after that like Argentina were an absolute shambles I said during the match I remember I, I think I told you that they're the the most hateable liked team in World Cup history yeah they're, there's nothing to like about that side like nothing to like at all even the players that are semi-likeable like Sergio Guerrero or uh, Gonzalo Higuain they're just so you know, kind of nonchalant in their lack of caring for their play or for the rest of their team that they don't try to help their team and then the the actual people you hate in that team the, the likes of Nicholas Altamendi who you know he's going to get a hell to pay for next season for Man City because just fans are just going to hate him. They're just going to be booing him all the time because he did nothing in the tournament at all but be just a dickhead. Like kicking the ball into players' heads in consecutive matches. I don't know how that didn't pick up a ban because, you know, there are people like, oh, spitting is a terrible thing. Like if a player spat another player, he would have got a retrospective ban. But what he did is, one, it's way more dangerous to spitting. Two, I think it's on the same level of disrespect as spitting on someone. And... You know, three, he could have really both, he did in the end harm his own team's chances as well as injuring a player on an opposite team, which would have obviously harmed that team's chances. And he was just doing it for no reason, just to be a child. And he did it like the word, like against Croatia, it was okay. He did it and the match was lost. But against France, he did it in the 93rd minute when there was two minutes left, taking up 90 seconds when it was 4-3. He just ended the tie. He ended like Argentina's World Cup there and then. He's just such a fool. And the, the play was throughout the team. Rojo did it. He remember giving away the penalty. He's like, no, this player is way better than me. I'm just going to take him down, looking not to be sent off. Uh, throughout, Mascherano was an absolute... Like, I was never a massive fan of, of Javier Mascherano at any point in his career. I thought he was... Even when he was at Liverpool before he went to Barcelona, I thought he was such a limited player. He would always line up against, uh, at his best, Liverpool up alongside Xavi Alonso. And he appointed Lanzo to pass the ball to someone else, not him. I was like, why is this player even in this site? He does nothing. And then he gets a, he signs to Barcelona and basically he becomes a utility centre-back at Barcelona in a team that doesn't need to defend for 90% of their matches. And he was, like, really poor. Like, in, even against Nigeria, like, the good Argentina performance, uh, Mascherano was so detrimental to the side. Yeah, he, and, like, he was only good for winning the ball back after he'd already given he it away. He did make himself. some amazing challenges against Sergio which must be said. But I've never rated him. I remember when he was a young player coming through and he did well at the, was it the World Cup, the Under-17 World Cup that they won in 2005, I think, and then they won the Olympics afterwards. Or is it the World the Way Around? I think it was the other way around. Um, and he came through and you know, this great guy is a leader of this team and Messi's in this team and all these other great Argentina players are in this team which of course hasn't been replicated since Argentina have done nothing at youth level since was it 12, 13 years ago at this stage which kind of shows you why the rest of this Argentina t- side and the future of Argentinian football looks a bit in doubt and they look to be going down a you know Colombia mid-90s late 90s early 2000s route of great talented era coming to an end abruptly and being replaced by nothingness for a good period of time like Messi could drag them to another World Cup in four years but he's going to he might need help this time around and I don't know where that help is coming from in terms of defence and like they haven't produced a goalkeeper in nigh 20 years and then the question remains does Messi even want to do that I don't know if I were him I wouldn't it's so much hassle it's so much pain 
it, it at his age, like not that he's old or anything, but and not that he shows really any signs of slowing down, similar to Ronaldo. Maybe not as the physical specimen of Ronaldo, but I think Messi does look after himself, just does it in a much quieter way than maybe Ronaldo does. I'm sure Barcelona have the best doctors and best fitness coaches and best nutritionists in the world, probably looking after him and making sure his career is prolonged as long as possible. But does he want to have to go through that of ten? times a year maybe more having to travel back to South America to play a hard qualifier where players are going to be kicking him where he's going to be like the absolute you know you have to do something messy otherwise we're going to lose this match yeah like that's a lot of pressure it is. for very little reward yeah and to get what out of it in four years time have another oh Messi's not the greatest unless he wins the World Cup and oh he's already passed it now and all this and he'll still be carrying them in four years I know he'll be 35 or whatever but going on 35 in five years time he's 30 now i think it's not going to be he'll still be carrying them and it's not going to change anything in the four years i don't see things changing dramatically they do of course have great players in an attacking sense they have Tabala who barely played they'll still have aguero probably he'll still be knocking around at that point they have the inter milan player who uh cardo icardi you know these are fantastic forward players and they still are producing the odd few of those, but defensively they are useless. And there's nothing looking like it's coming through. Nothing looks like it's changing in Argentinian football anytime soon. It's not getting any stronger domestically. Players are still leaving, and but they're leaving at a lower rate, which kind of tells you like maybe there isn't the the volume of players coming through anymore. Like you look at their neighbours across their border, across the River Plate in Uruguay, and like. They produce, they're a tiny population, some of the population similar size to Ireland, about 4 million, and they produce countless players. Maybe not all to the level of, you know, uh, Luis Suarez and Edison Cavani, but like everyone in that team is worthy of their place. They will get in, they all play in European top teams in Europe, and Argentina cannot, you know, they can't rival that. And uh, they are still in the World Cup, which shows how impressive they've been. Yeah. Uh, and they play France on Friday in the first of the quarterfinals. How do you see that one going? Uh, a tighter match than I think is being previewed elsewhere. Like a lot of people say, no, France have hit the gears against Argentina and obviously they'll be confident and they'll be in form going into this match against Uruguay who haven't showed a great deal in terms of control in these matches. Some say they scraped through Portugal in the end. Portugal put them under a lot of pressure. And it could have gone different ways if, if decisions or you know decisions or chances had gone differently in that match in the first la- first to last sixteen matches or the second to last sixteen matches. But they got through. France might feel confident that they they have a way of playing now. They have it's clear. Drew is number one. Mbappe and Griezmann are playing off him. Uh, the defense seems solid, apart from the fact that they keep conceding goals, but. Despite the fact they conceded three goals, they were playing against Messi, who kind of orchestrated all of the goals. Yeah, like the first one is just kind of a... Well, the first one is a a freak, yeah, and that was poor defending. But at the time, you can excuse it for a complete blip in concentration. It was right on half time. They had dealt with everything so well, they probably didn't think much of it which I'm sure Deschamps reprimanded them for afterwards. And you could see in the second half, they were a lot more, they were a lot quicker to close down that space between the lines than they were at that point. But the other two goals, like one of them was a, a beautiful, yeah, that, an amazing pass messy. from Messi. 
into Aguero in the in stoppage time. The tie was won, and the other one was just complete fluke of Messi having a shot that was deflected. Yeah, like that was. Uh, but then the, the thing is, uh, Uruguay. It seems like Edison Cavani will uh, not start this match anyway. Mm. I, I don't know will he be able to come off the bench or not. But it could be a similar problem to Colombia against England, like the with James Rodriguez. Uh, I don't think Cavani is that important to Uruguay I as, just, as. I just don't know where they score. Like I don't think Suarez. I think is going to be able to do. Yeah, it. I don't necessarily think they'll they'll want to create an environment where scoring is their main objective in the match. I think they will create a, an environment where they're going to play six defensive midfielders and have Suarez running around badgering, hoping to draw a mistake out of the French defence as they hold on to the ball. And I think they'll surrender possession for... I wouldn't be surprised if France get between 60 and 75% possession most of the match. I don't think it'll be that high. I think it will. I think Uruguay are going to surrender possession. They don't want the ball in this case. Why would we want the ball? The French have shown that they get complacent, as we said, the first goal against Argentina, or the first goal against them for Argentina, was them becoming complacent. And, you know, there's mistakes in that defence, as we've seen in previous rounds. Everyone, even Pogba and Kante, were not, are not 100% on the ball all the time in that centre midfield. And Suarez is, he is still world class. He is a nitpicker of a striker. He will pounce on mistakes made, and he will take a shot from anywhere and try and, you know, goal hungry. He's a winner. He is a competitor. And he won't, you know, rest until he gets his opportunity. And... The rest of Uruguay's side is very solid. They're young. They're fit. You know, I, I was surprised because, you know, going into the tournament, I kind of thought that there was a lot of elderly players in this team who were kind of passing passing on, like the likes of Suarez, the likes of Cavani, who were, you know, not necessarily in their prime anymore, just beyond it. But the younger players have, put, have, have shown up and they've been, without being, you know, show-stopping or being name-worthy, they are being extremely solid. They've only conceded one goal in the tournament so far. Like I was surprised enough when they conceded that goal. I thought when they scored that first goal against Portugal, that was that was curtains for Portugal. That's how you know impressive they are, and they could, that's why I think this match will be very close. I would put France as my favourites because they have form, because they have better players overall, because the better players they do have are in form. The likes of Pogba, the likes of. Mbappe and Griezmann is still scoring goals even if he's not playing very well in open play he's still scoring in every nearly every match and of course Drew is leading the line bringing opening up play and doing what Drew does best which is kind of annoy defenders with his prettiness yeah I think I I actually have a different view mm-hmm. how this match is going to go I think France are going to be uh, I think they lack an actual plan up front which is going to kill them against a side that is so defensively solid I think that the midfielders will be able to get some control of the match. I, I, I agree that Full France control. will have. I think France will have more control of the ball, but I think Uruguay will be confident on the ball. They'll know that when they have it, they don't need just to just boot it. Mm-hmm. I think that they can play. I think that uh, set pieces is going to be very big. Like they have Diego Godin and Jimenez there. Like but both of them are huge threats on set pieces, which we've seen in this competition. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Uruguay would be slight. I think if Cavani's playing, then they're definite favourites. But I think even without Cavani starting, that they can hold on until he does come on. Why do you have such a low opinion of the French? Because they completely lack a game plan. I think Deschamps is a terrible manager. And I think the fact that they're starting Giroud uh, is the symbol of that. I, well, I disagree. I don't think Deschamps is a terrible manager. I don't think much of him in a tactical sense. I don't think much of him in a man management sense either. I think he is a 
personality manager is the fact that he's won everything he could ever possibly have won. But he seems so boring. Well, yeah, but... Like, do you ever watch his press conferences? It's just standard fare. But that's... He's a personality manager in the same vein as Zidane in a slightly different way. He's less impressive than Zidane, obviously. But he won everything. So he was captain of a World Cup winning side, captain of a European Championship winning side, one of the main players in the European Cup winning side, won Serie A's, like Scudetto's. He won everywhere he went. He was impressive. He was a workman. He was what was it, Zidane's water carrier. That was he was called yeah, as a player. Yeah, that was what Cantona yeah. Yeah, called him. Which is what he was, you know. He was a central midfielder that was hard to beat and was competitive. And, you know, that is kind of the way he's managed his sides. He has managed teams to Champions League finals. He managed a completely unfancied Monaco team to an unfortunate defeat in the Champions League final against uh, Porto, like Mourinho's Porto in 2004. And, you know, he did very well at that. And he's stayed in the French job for so long, which is a, is a, is a feat in recent times, considering how, you know, a superior manager, though we don't know how much superior, but Laurent Blanc didn't last as long, even though he, you know, had more pedigree as a manager than maybe, you know, as a man manager, certainly than maybe Blanc, than maybe Deschamps did. But he, he, he knows something. And no, I do not think he's a very good manager, but it is international football. You don't have to be a fantastic manager. He does have great players there in front of him. But I think I disagree in that he doesn't have an attacking plan. The attacking plan, I think, has finally come together. Rather than when it started in the tournament, they kind of just played a floating forward line that didn't really make any sense. Having Drew there as the kind of star on top of a Christmas tree, and which gives you know the, the defence something to think about in terms of they have to watch this big man all the time. He's not going to track yeah, back. Yeah, but it's Diego Godin and Jimenez. Yeah. I think they can handle Olivier Giroud. Well, I don't, handle them is fine, but it's not them. It's not him they need to handle. It's the two players that he creates space for in Griezmann, who knows who knows this Uruguay defence very well, and Mbappe, who is just well in my opinion one of the best players in the world and has been for the past year so he he even if he loses he tries so hard he doesn't stop trying and he's got phenomenal pace and phenomenal skill he doesn't have crappy pace he doesn't have Michael Owen pace which is brilliant and fantastic over a short burst he has the physique the strides the longevity of play he has the technique and skill on the ball to hold on to the ball while at speed and he has an eye for goal and he, you know when he shoots he tends to get it on target as we saw in two goals against Argentina, which were neither of them looking like the easiest chances to score from and from a bit of awkward angles, and he did it both times. And I think if Drew creates any space for these two players, which will be tough in this match, don't get me wrong, I do rate Uruguay higher than other, other people have. I think France will get some joy, and I think the attacking plan will come into force in this match. I just don't see France being able to break down. Not, not they won't be scoring four goals no, for no, sure. Like, I think the reason that they got four goals against Argentina is because, as we mentioned, Argentina's defense is so awful it barely even exists. Whereas I think Uruguay are the complete antithesis of Argentina, where they are so more cohesive. They actually have a plan. They actually know how to defend, and I think they can attack just as well as Argentina can. So penalty shootout then. I, I could easily see this going to a penalty It would be shootout, an yeah. interesting narrative if we got a penalty shootout because these two teams have pretty not good records in penalty shootouts. Like Uruguay did beat uh, Ghana in... Yeah, in 2010. 2010, yeah. but then they lost, didn't they, in penalties to the Netherlands in the semi? 
No, it was 3-2. Oh, it was 3-2 in the semi. Okay, maybe I'm thinking. Yeah, Uruguay probably do actually have a better record then. Because France actually have a poor record in penalties. They have one of the, you know, it's not Netherlands or England's record in penalties, but it is not good either. They went, lost in Euro 96, I believe, on penalties. And then they lost in, obviously, the World Cup final in 2006. So there is a bit of a... And they lost, obviously, to Germany in 82. There is a... Like, I think maybe they beat Brazil in 86 on penalties. So I think that's the only victory I can think of that they have an international level. I I don't know, actually. Yeah, I, so I it, could be, it would be interesting for them to go through because this is a relatively young French side in a lot of ways. And, the you know, Griezmann has missed penalties in important matches. Giroud has missed penalties in important matches. Uh, Pogba has missed penalties. You know, it's if they all had to take one in one match... You wouldn't know. Yeah, and it's 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 weird as well. Like I definitely don't expect goals in this match tomorrow. I expect it to be very tense. Like previous meetings between these sides has yielded more red cards than goals. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we get a bit of that tomorrow as well. There yeah, there could be some hard tackling going in, especially if there's some reputations to break and the, like there's a lot of fancy French flair in these in this team. And that could be the want of desire from the Ur- Uruguayans to, you know, kind of show them who's boss. Uh, Uruguay only come into the match with one player on a yellow card. I know, I was I looking, think. the top half of the draw actually has very few yellow cards. It's all, basically, it's in the Croatia-Russia match, it's the majority of bookings in the quarterfinals. That, you know, there's only a few, I think you can only have four and to balance out that side of the draw. But the top half is like one per team, roughly. Yeah, I think it's Bentecourt as the yellow card for Uruguay, and I think France have three. Mm. And they're missing uh They're missing between as well. Yeah. Which could be... Uh, yeah, I'd be more... Loss. Yeah, because who's going to come in? It's going to be Taliso? I think it'll be Taliso. To come yeah, in. They're not the same No, player. not by any stretch of imagination. Like, Matuidi may not be the best skill or the best creative player in the world, but he does have an engine. He reminds me a lot of, you know, the Aaron Ramsey type player, the maybe even a Darren Fletcher type. You know, a water carrier, for lack of a better word. Someone with a lot of stamina, who runs a lot, who creates space, who offers an outlet for more skillful players in midfield. And I don't know if Talisa was more in the line of a Paul Pogba type player who wants to do things and create things, which might not necessarily be the best thing to do in a game which is going to have very little space between players and there's going to be a very tight marking going on. And if he wants to do something skillful, he's going to feel a bit of force from the Uruguayans. It might be nice to have someone that a little bit more creative in the team, though, just because it will be so hard to break down Uruguay. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure that's the idea going into it. But And also, who else would France have to play in that role? I wouldn't give it to the likes of Fekir and change the formation. I wouldn't try to drop Griezmann back to midfield. Like, who else would they have to try and fill that void? I don't think they've used anyone else in that position. No, I can't think of any No, that's the thing, you see. They, they do have other players, obviously, in those positions. But to keep them as a kind of runner and... You know, an old-fashioned central box-to-box midfielder. They're not. They're not inundated with those type of players. You know, Paul Pogba obviously can do that, but he's already on the field. Can't they can do it to an extent without maybe the attacking flair that's needed in some regards? But yeah, the Taliso seems to be the only option that they're confident of, and he's not that great defensively. So a lot of responsibility will fall on Pogba and Kante, and I think Kante will have to bear a lot of that responsibility more than Pogba. Yeah, sure. Kante is all. It's always joked that he can do the, the job of two or three players on the pitch. So. He generally has to. If you if 
if you if you were to pick one player necessary for that uh, position in this match against Uruguay, you pick Kante. Yeah, most likely. Um, Although I think so a lot of handy. Uruguay's attacks aren't going to come through the centre necessarily. They're going to focus on those fullbacks who like to get forward and uh, Pavar and Hernandez who like to push on and kind of create the width in the French team because obviously it's very focused through the middle through the three central midfielders. And maybe Uruguay can try to exploit that a bit by pushing on their fullbacks because obviously they'll be more confident defensively than French the French would be. Yeah, but Cante uh, will just be everywhere. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's the presumption. Uh, and then the second quarterfinal on Friday, the one at seven o'clock is Brazil v Belgium. Hopefully, more of a goal fest than uh, Uruguay France. Yeah, I can't see this not having goals in it because. I think if you're Belgium, you have to go at this. Like, Roberto Martinez has to go, like, this is the World Cup. This is why we came here. This is why we worked for the last two years to try and improve ourselves and better ourselves. This is why I chose your play, you, instead of, you know, the likes of Nangolin and the likes of uh, Benteke, the, the, the old school type of Belgian players who got left out of this team. You know, he wants them to show, and he, he I'm sure he will endear that into them that you should show what you have in this because there's nothing left after it if you beat brazil you will be the favorites in this world cup simple as that yeah like brazil like there's probably no bigger occasion in a world cup than playing brazil like this is the moment players especially a functioning of. brazil which is, seems to be what they are with the exception of neymar that you know it's yeah like they, they don't concede a lot no, of goals at all they're very they're very tight they have, as we've said before in previous podcasts, they're compact. They move very well. They keep her does well when he's called upon so far. Anyway, and, you know, the attack functions well with the exception of Neymar's play acting. But at the same time, Neymar's play acting seems to create space for the other attacking players to turn, turn on their stuff and do stuff, as we saw with Willian in the last match and Coutinho throughout the tournament. It's, it's geared up nicely. The thing I would like to say about like for Belgium is there is a real opportunity here because they have a superior midfield you have to say and the one Brazilian player who maybe you'd see is shutting everything down Casemiro is suspended for this match yeah that, that is a big loss like Fernandinho is going to assumedly come in but he as good as he is he's not Casemiro no he's not Casemiro he may have you know he has good knowledge of Kevin De Bruyne, obviously, from being his teammate, but he also will know Eden Hazard pretty well. And, you know, if Fellaini plays or if whoever else plays for Belgium midfield, he'll probably have a decent enough knowledge of them. But like you say, unless someone else gets in there with him, like Coutinho is not going to be defending in that midfield and they could get overwhelmed very quickly. And if that midfield gets cut off, you could see very little service to Neymar and then Neymar kind of left adrift on that left-hand side and Belgium to take control of the match the only thing you'd want to say is that Belgium got very complacent against Japan and if they get complacent like that for a few minutes against Brazil Brazil are going to absolutely crush them yeah the thing with Japan is I think they they had their eye on Brazil I think they already they went into the match assuming they were going to win Mm. which like that happens sometimes in World Cups like I I don't really want to say it was arrogance but it was a a form of arrogance maybe that they could just walk over Japan and Japan were actually a lot better than they gave them credit for and I don't think they'll make that mistake against Brazil you would think not you would think it is Brazil but they like Belgium do have a history of doing that if you remember four years ago in USA it was almost a carbon copy of that Japan match where yeah i think i think i said that on my daily yeah. diary it was very it was eerily similar it was, except it, it was. didn't go to extra and time. then last time if you remember as well against wales in the euro 2016 
the so-called inferior side comes up and like in the case of the USA in the case of Japan they didn't manage to win but Wales certainly did and Brazil are better than Wales you have to say like it is it is worrying the two goals they conceded the fact that they were letting chances off in well into the stoppage time of that match against a team who you know let's face it in fairness I want to say about Japan is that was the finest performance I've seen in this World Cup even though they lost in the end 3-2 the way they played football was if they honestly if they had one world class player if they had a Gareth Bale a Cristiano Ronaldo a Luka Modric even in that side they I would I put them as favourites for the tournament because they were phenomenal throughout the whole team like the keeper may be a bit suspect but he did still make good saves in the match they played positive football they played controlled football they played the cleverest football which I think I will start seeing a lot more of now where you know how a lot of players a ball is played too long for them and they'll chase after it and they'll run it yeah. and run out of play and you see it every single match you see it the Japanese players make a split decision no it's gone and they turn back and they run back to their position and not lose a second they wouldn't if there was a throw in in the within you know 16 yards of the corner flag to the op- opposition team why would I waste time trying to you know you know slow down the play and mark the players let them throw the ball out and get the ball back into play and let's let's challenge midfield like it was phenomenal football like they they were outdone by their lack of physicality their their somewhat naivety some of their players that they you know they could attack in the 95th minute or 94th minute with eight players you know that was a bit silly but other than that they were a phenomenal team in the world cup and you know belgium did beat them but i don't think they were the better side yeah, but that is the thing about this Brazil match as well. Is like uh, you mentioned USA and Japan and uh, Wales. Like again, like the Belgium were clearly the favourites in those matches. Yeah. I don't think they'll be going into the Brazil match with the idea that they can walk over Brazil. But then, having said that, they actually like they should push Brazil. Like they should try get physical with Brazil because we saw it with Switzerland. Switzerland were very successful mm. at it. Serbia were only kind of successful. Like they. They were able to kind of make it awkward for Brazil, but then they just didn't take their chances at all, or they weren't able to really create any. Uh, but this Belgium side can get physical and they can create chances. Like that's how they that's how they beat Brazil is they don't let Brazil play. And like Roberto Martinez hasn't lost a match since his first match. It's another thing to remember. He does have a record going into this, and that must stand for something in terms of both their psychological state that you know we cannot be beaten we are better than everyone else and also the fact that you know something must be going right if they're winning all their matches or at least avoiding defeat but you brought you raised an interesting point about physicality that they must show against brazil the referee is going to play a vital role in this match i think because if it is ref the way the last couple of matches against brazil have been ref where the ref has kind of let everything go as in you know they know Neymar now. They know he's going down very easily. They know the there's play acting on the ground. They know he's the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, well, fourteen minutes out of four matches on the ground is a lot of you know match. A lot of minutes on the ground. He's 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 tumbled properly. Tumbled doing a double roll in two in two different matches now, and for not no challenges at all. He's tried to get players sent off, which is playing modern game, I suppose, but. When you keep doing, like generally speaking, you have to be coy about doing this. You have to be a Harry Maguire and kind of, oh, you know, I I pretended to dive and then I got up very quickly. Like Neymar would pretend to dive and then stick to the play. Like he he, oh no, I honestly I'm injured. I'm injured. I'm injured. You know. Yeah, and like I I said this as well on the Daily Diaries. It's like it just makes him the villain yeah. of this competition. 
Like, no one wants to root for no. Neymar. No one wants to see Neymar win at this no. point. And this Brazil side is so, like, encouraging. They're, they're like, the rest of the team is probably the most modest Brazil side you've seen in a very long time. That there's no, not that there's no breakout stars, but everyone seems to be playing towards the team, towards the effort of the team. There's no, apart from Neymar, of course, there's no players hogging the ball. There's no players, like getting undue praise within the team or demanding things or kicking up or fighting with teammates the way you often see with you know prima donna type players it's all good for brazil their coach seems to be very competent very very uh how would you say again uh, a lot of grace and humility in his in the way he speaks about his uh, opposition and the way he speaks about his players you know it's so unusual to see this coming from a Brazil side, especially in a World Cup year, and then Neymar goes and spoils it all. Yeah, and like it's it's at the point now where like I just would prefer if they dropped him. Like that one yeah, that would be well, incredible, but two it would really help the team. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I, you know, it, it will and it won't help the team. I think it would make them become a much swifter and more compact side. But at the same time, Neymar does seem to keep scoring goals. And he does seem to, you know, keep creating chances, even though a lot of the chances he creates, he kind of squanders himself by just running wide and wide and wide and wide, and then the ball goes away, and he doesn't care. He doesn't track back. He doesn't defend. You know, he is such a frustrating player. Like, he is obviously very good at football, but he's he's so frustrating that you like when you see him rolling over in the ground, you have no sympathy for him at all. And as you said, the boy who cried wolf, which remember what happened to the boy who cried wolf at the end of the day? He got, he got eaten by a wolf, and you know if the referee, as we said, uh, as I said earlier, if the referees decide to like, no, this guy is just play acting. He's trying to, he's trying to con us. Neymar could be looking at it as a serious injury because, as we said, this Belgium side, they're no, you know, they're no lightweights. They are big guys who know how to make the physical game work for them. And if they do what you say they'll do and play a physical game against Brazil, let them know they're there. You know, Coutinho's a small guy. Willian is a small guy. Even Gabriel Jesus is a small guy. You know, they they will get roughed up a bit. And do you think they will start Gabriel? I assume they will. Oh, they will. Do you think they should they will. start Jesus? I, I, personally, I think they play, play better with Firmino. And I think having Firmino allows him to drop deeper into that false nine, even a 10 position. He lets, uh, lets Coutinho play a bit more to the wing. And also, you know, clog up the space, tie up an extra fullback or defender, and then let Neymar even have more space. Tactically, I think Firmino makes more sense. But at the same time, if you play Firmino and it does not work, you're in trouble. Because then you don't have an outball the way Jesus offers it, where he runs, collects the ball, presses on defenders, and kind of interlinks with the other players in his team. You don't get that from Firmino because he isn't an out-and-out number nine. He is most definitely a false nine or even a, an advanced number 10 where he's playing at the edge of midfield and outside the box more than inside the box. And, you know, so far, not a lot of goals have come from inside the box from Brazil, like, as in they haven't been created inside the box. It's very much been the Coutinho, Neymar, Willian show. And I don't see that changing. And especially against this defense, I don't see that changing. But it's a big call for Tite to Chichi to uh, change everything up like that in the quarterfinal if things have gone so well so far where they're winning every match like except for Switzerland and, and it is with that that we will close out part one of the show join us after the break where we will preview Saturday's quarterfinals it's Ronaldo
Welcome back now for part two, where we will look at the upcoming matches on Saturday. Take it away, Andrew. What about the next match that's happening after that on Saturday? We have... Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, Brazil... Or not Brazil, Belgium. I, I just, we just talked about that. We have England against Sweden at three o'clock The most underwhelming of all the ties, to be quite honest, in the quarterfinals. There's not much you can find from this match other than this is a young Sweden side without any big stars who... With players that haven't, some of them haven't made it in England or haven't made it with English clubs. And despite them beating England in the under 20, a lot of this England side actually, as it turns out, in the final of the under 21 European Championship several years ago now, I think four or four or five years ago now, um, you can't but give, make England favourites for this tie. Making England as favourites. That's what I mean. You can't, not, you can't yeah. do anything but make England favourites for this tie. They. You know they didn't show a great deal against Colombia, but then they didn't have to. They scored another penalty. I wouldn't be surprised if they get another penalty or a set piece goal in this. They don't look like they're going to create anything from outside in you know normal play. They don't look threatening at all in any way. And in some ways, Sweden are the antithesis of that, where they're not necessarily scoring a lot of goal, not scoring a lot of goals from set pieces, but not well. One, they're not scoring many goals at all. But secondly, their goals seem to always come from almost the exact same move of a counterattack, which is weird for a side that is actually really slow. Yeah, they're tremendously slow. Like Forsberg is so slow up there, but he is—he's quite talented oh, as yeah. well, and he has played quite well in this competition. The entire, you can't get to work up quarterfinals without playing well in some regard, especially if you come out from the like a group of death the way they did with Mexico and Germany in there, as well as uh, Korea. Like teams who all won matches were in their group, which is something that's done easily, including the world champions were in there as well. Like they've done very well. They've overcome a tough Switzerland side, though they would have been the preferred draw on the second round, if you're being honest. They're underwhelming. They're an underwhelming quarterfinal opponent, and that's why England will be confident going into this. At the same time, England have shown nothing against quality opposition yet. That makes me think that they have the ability to go all the way but then again Germany in 2002 went all the way without having a centre forward really Kirsten Janker was in that side Oliver Neuville was in that side and they got to a World Cup final and if it wasn't for Oliver Kahn might have won a World Cup in 2002 so this England side is more talented than that 2002 Germany side and they're still alive and kicking their attacking players have yet to show anything of what they can do you know Lingard had that brief glimpse but again that goal was against Panama, so I would have had a chance to score that goal against Panama in that much space, given that much time. I, I, I'm i unsure as them yet. I don't think they have the quality of midfield still. I think Jordan Henderson is a poor player. Eric Dyer isn't... Like, I liked Eric Dyer when he was in Portugal. I thought, oh, this is an English player playing abroad. He's shown a lot for, for an English player. He's shown ingenuity is showing something you know thinking outside the box pushing the envelope playing in a foreign league adapting his his style of football playing in a completely different system he'll go back to England he went back to England and kind of just fell into this David Batty Paul Ince Dennis Wise type of role where you know you could be talented you could show a bit of touch or a bit of creativity but then you decide to just pound like he just poured on the muscle lost a lot of his pace and just, I don't know what he does now. He just kind of stands there and gives gives the ball back to the defenders or gives the ball to the more talented midfielders he has around him. I don't see his point. And Jordan Henderson is a, is a suspension waiting to happen. He got booked, I think, in the last round. 
he's probably I, I expect him to get booked in this match no matter what he's a very angry young like he's still a young man he's angry he's so angry no, he's 28 is he 28 now what a waste yep. of a career so <laughs> so he's 28 now he's going to go you know he he's going to be feeling a lot of uh, anxiety and pressure like I noticed one thing Gareth Southgate was uh, consoling the Colombian players after they missed the penalty and the penalty shootout that England won at last during the week wasn't consoling Jordan Henderson like Jordan Henderson should not have taken that penalty you could see a walk yeah, that was, everyone that was a weird could one. see it like I watched uh, the commentary team I was watching it was Ray Houghton say he's going to miss and Ray Houghton knows Jordan Henderson he's a Liverpool captain Jordan Henderson Ray Houghton knows him well and he's like oh he's going to miss James Rodriguez apparently was was complaining with uh, Esteban Cambiaso oh this player watch him watch him he's going to miss he's going to miss everyone like I could think of when I was like why is he doing keep you up piece yeah, I think I think it was Ray Houghton again on RT was saying that oh, keep you up is actually a horrible sign. Yeah, it's nerves. Know, shows that he's really nervous. Yeah, it's nerves. Like it's not a horrible sign if it's before a match or if you're just kind of messing around waiting. But he wasn't waiting. Yeah, like Maradona used. Yeah, to exactly. He's not waiting for something to happen. He is the instigator of the event. If he runs, the penalty gets taken faster. And if he's doing keep you up, he's it's getting taken slower. So he's prolonging it, probably trying to calm himself, probably trying to take deep breaths. I'm watching the football and trying to ignore the situation that's happening in front of him or at least put that to one side and focus on what he's doing. It clearly didn't work. He took the most ob- there's the, there's the most obvious penalty you can ever take as a player is if you're right-footed to hit it to the left-hand side, you know, hit it basically angled diagonal away from him. Now, he didn't do that. He actually took the lead, the lesser of the obvious ones. But he against, took it against a player, a goalkeeper in, in David Ospina, who is tiny who shouldn't really be anywhere near saving any of these penalties. And does, you can see Ospina changing his mind as he saw Jordan Henderson. It's like, okay, I can see what this guy's going to do. And he watched the run-up, and then he dived to save the penalty. Yeah, like, Henderson didn't disguise where he was putting it no. at all. Like, it was really obvious where he was putting it, which obviously helps Ospina yeah, get Yeah, because Ospina there. was, if you watch the other penalties, he, like, Ospina fairly made a decision early to dive early. Because he is a short goalkeeper, he has to make his decision early to actually get to the ball. As you know, he almost did for the fifth penalty that uh, Eric Dyer scored. But for this, he took his time and he took it because it was hit with no pace, no conviction. Even it wasn't the shortest run up, but it wasn't a confident run up. It, it spelled everything wrong. And to get to the point I was trying to get to the beginning of it, against Sweden, he's going to be feeling that pressure and that anxiety, that overhang from that penalty shootout. And he's also very aggressive and very angry for no apparent reason that if Sweden will know to wind him up, there is players in that Sweden side, you saw it against Germany, they're winding up those German players here in that match, you know, not necessarily through the old dark arts of a diving or giving them a kick, but I'd say they were slagging them or something like that, because those German players were getting angry in that match, and I can see them doing the exact same thing to Jordan Henderson, and focusing on him, getting suspended for the next match, and then maybe, you know, the, the guy might fall apart psychologically, because he isn't the strongest mentally. I think that's pretty obvious. He does make mistakes uh, as the penalty, but he makes mistakes at club level at Liverpool as well. He doesn't do anything too great in that team. And it's, you know, Gareth Southgate can't really do anything about it now, but that is the one big thing keeping England from being, you know, the favourites for this tournament is having a centre midfielder with a bit of something about them, which they, they really don't have. Yeah, like all the points you're making is just talking me into believing Sweden is going to win this match because, like, they play the very they play a very compact kind of four four two again. Yeah, and like England, they've scored what nine goals in this competition, yep. 
and seven of them have come from set pieces or penalties. One of them was a massive deflection, and then one of them was an actual well, the goal. Two open goal the Lingard. two open play goals they scored were both against Panama, so... I, as well, yeah. You know, I, they may as well not have happened. You know, as well as six of exactly. those goals you speak of, may or five of those... Was it six they scored against Panama? It was six against yeah, Panama. Yeah, those six goals they scored against Panama probably shouldn't be counted either, because, you know, you may as well be counting Matt, goals they scored in before the tournament happened. Because... You know, bar the three points they got them to to get them into the next stage, that match really didn't count for much at all. Yeah, like I think, I think as you said, they lack a proper midfield. I think they lack an ability to break teams down. I think that uh, Sweden will be able to defend set pieces better than the likes of uh, Tunisia, Panama, and like I don't think the like and I don't Columbia. know what Colombia were really doing. Yeah. Like Colombia should have been able to defend set well, pieces. Well, they did apart from they, one occasion. That was basically it. Now, but you could tell that they were they were struggling to see the penalty. Yeah, well, the English players are very good. You know, obviously, like Gareth Southgate made a point of you know he did the old Brendan Rodgers thing before the tournament of making a point to let the media know that they're working very hard in set pieces. And in every single match, they've shown that they've worked hard in set pieces. They've done something different in every match. They focus on them. They've had players, you know, kind of acting up. Like the penalty was it? Yeah, it was the penalty award. Did you see the routine they did for the the corner? Was it the corner? Wasn't it? To win the penalty against Colombia, weren't they all lined yeah, exactly. up? Yeah, exactly. Weird. They train. were lined in a train, which isn't the most unusual thing. You do see a lot of players standing yeah, outside the box it, yeah. and then moving in together. But they lined up in a train, and then a Colombia tra- player tried to get in between members of the train, which just alerted the referee to it immediately. So the referee came and gave them the Colombia players, "Don't do that. You'll get, you know, I'll call a foul. It'll be a penalty," and they go and do it anyway. But it's just them doing that, doing something unusual or doing something different. It scares these defences. These usually, generally very competent, very assured, very calm defences get a fright. And they're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? I'm going to have to, we're going to have to do something different. Do something different. Grab him, grab him. Oh, pull him to the ground. Oh no, it's a penalty. Oh no, we'll fight. Well, it's not a penalty. It's not a penalty. No, it is a penalty. And like yeah, and- Sweden, in fairness, like they gave away a lot of silly fouls. You remember like... For Tony Kroos, the greatness of Tony Kroos' equal or winning goal rather in that in that match against uh, Sweden in the second group match, you know the, Sweden didn't give away that that free kick right at the end. They didn't need to do that. They were smarter though against Mexico and against Switzerland, which were two very good performances. From they, were, they were much. Improved. They're very composed. You know, I want to say Sweden in in a lot of ways. I like. Oh, I want to say Sweden are going to get through. You know, they're. they're They've been solid, they've been good, but there's something about, with the exception of the, obviously the Zlatan match where he scored the bicycle kick against England, Sweden always, like, screw up against England. They have a history of it, going back at least 15 years of screwing. I remember them playing in 2006, and it was 2-all. Joe Cole scored that amazing yeah. flute goal. What, what happened in their match? They played in Euro 2012, didn't they? they? England won. Was England that? won. That was uh, was that not the Theo match? Uh, Danny Welbeck was it? Danny Welbeck. It, I remember Theo Walcott. Didn't Theo Walcott score a goal from like thirty yards in that match? That does sound familiar, but I, I can't remember. Was that? It? I think that was. It was Sweden, France, and Ukraine. I yeah, think it was England's group in two thousand twelve. And England, France, well, Eng- and England, got France out England got out of it. So it obviously went well for them in that. But it's just it's historically, it's like whenever you, th- whenever I've thought in the past, oh, Sweden could do England in this. Like I think it was was it two two thousand and two? They were in the same group as well. The World Cup were they? I'm maybe I'm I'm getting that more mixed up, but like you always expect them to do okay, and then they always just fail to perform, and England take the control. Like this match will go one of two ways, and very similar to the Columbia match, 
England will score early and they'll win the match or this thing is going to penalties and if it goes to penalties again I don't see England winning another penalty shootout I think they may have used up their penalty shootout luck in teams don't win two penalty shootouts normally normally they don't in a, in a World Cup but like like this is the best England have played in a tournament since probably 1998 they're in a quarter final there's no prima donnas there's no signs of the camp imploding yet managers well like the media are on it you know they did the media have kind of fueled a lot of hate so far but they, they've kept quiet the last couple of days and we'll see whether that'll be the same tomorrow and on saturday if the media will avoid antagonizing the swedes because i think you know when the when the tabloids in in england they make these huge headlines and they start goading the opposition players or investigating their personal lives or you know doing the things the tabloids do it does not help the England team one bit. And I'm not saying that in terms of, oh, you know, everyone wants the England team to lose. As in, it gives added motivation to the opposition. Like, calling yeah, like Johnny Gaudetti. We see this. But calling, you know, it's John, what's Gaudetti? Isn't it Johnny Gaudetti? The former Man City yeah, player? That's, who's at, yeah. Was he at Betty's now? or Celta Vigo is where he was at when they lost Man United. Is he still there? Anyway, he's I in Spain somewhere. He definitely is in Spain somewhere. But calling him a failed player when he's like well no he's he scores goals in La Liga you know he's not starting for Sweden in this match but like you're just antagonizing players and like they're people too they're going to acknowledge this thing and they're going to give extra motivation to the Swedes like we're going to show these English players how how we play football and that we can compete with them too sure we don't have the talent we used to have in terms of you know we don't have Henrik Larsson anymore we don't have uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic anymore we don't have Freddy Nunberg anymore we don't have you know an Olsen in defense anymore but who cares we're, we're ourselves and we're going to show that we are more than those individual players could bring we are more than some of our parts and again that is the way kind of England are playing at the moment as well but if the press give Swedes more motivation you know they might just show up I think that uh Sweden will be able to catch them on the counter-attack. Like, as we said, it's a slow counter-attack, but I don't think that'll matter. I think there'll be so much space. I think Forsberg has the talent to pick out the pass. And I think that, like, I don't really rate this England defence. No, like, they haven't not, been challenged they've conceded, yet. They've conceded in every match, and they played Tunisia and Panama in those matches. Yeah. Like, they conceded against a Belgian side that was actively trying to lose. Yeah. Like, they conceded Adnan Januzaj. They conceded... Uh, to Gary Mina, which isn't the worst thing that's happened to them, but like they've conceded in every match, and they always look like they have a problem defensively. Where like there was a point in the Colombian match where I can't remember was it John Stones or Kyle Walker, and they were just on the ball, and they were too nonchalant. It was Kyle Walker just got caught yeah, out. It was Kyle, Falcao caught and, him out. And Kyle, that's happened to Kyle Walker plenty yeah. of times. We've seen it even at Man City. Well, that's why he doesn't play centre back. To happen, he's a full, he's but, a ring he's a wing back slash full back. He isn't a centre back. He shouldn't be given that and responsibility. Like, he he is, as you said, his concentration isn't isn't a hundred percent. Yeah, like I think that's a an area for Sweden to press at. Like they just push him, they just get at him, and they'll get chances from mm. it. Like they, I, I, it's very hard match to call. I can easily see it going to penalties, but you are talking me into believing Sweden can do it. I don't think Sweden like, could I, do I, it in normal time. I think it's only if they start really frustrating England and then England beat themselves. Because I think England might have enough quality in attack. I agree with what you're saying. England have not been challenged defensively, really. Like, the only team they've played 
which really gave it a go attacking was Belgium B, and it was effective against England B as well. So it wasn't a fair judgment of things. Can't, can't read it. No, not much, not hugely. So you're looking at the Colombia match where Colombia didn't really try to attack, but the only times they did, they took complete control of the match. Playing three at the back, in fairness, Garcia said it from the outset. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to change it. Maybe he has to change if the circumstances press on. Yeah, that's that's a problem I have with Southgate as well. Is he's just oddly stubborn on three at the back. Like, he didn't need to do it when they were one all with Tunisia. They could have easily taken out a defender. They could have easily taken out Kyle Walker, yeah. say, for uh, an attacking yeah. attacking player. And they would have had more control. They would have been able to find a bit more space. And it's an extra attacker that might pull something yeah. off out of nowhere. Like, they don't need to do this all the time. And I don't... Like, I think against Sweden that it'll be advantageous because they'll have the two up front. Mm that they'd need to stick with the three at the back in this case. But, like, if it's getting to extra time, Sweden will tire, I think, because, like, they have young players, but I I don't think they have anyone that's really known for stamina. No. Like, Forsberg had to come off against Switzerland, No, the- which I get also he was a bit rested because they felt that they were going to win that match, but they did also feel like taking him off, which, like, they were still only 1-0 up yeah. at that point. Like, Anything could have happened. They were... Yeah, anything could have happened. They could have conceded, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're caught with their pants down. And like they don't, they like they wouldn't have done that if they felt he could have finished ninety minutes without any problems. Exactly. So like there, there is a problem there that if it goes one hundred and twenty minutes, I think I don't know. Sweden will definitely be hoping for penalties at that point. But like at that point, you're thinking probably take off a defender and just go for it. Yeah. And if you, and if you don't score, you have an extra attacker for a penalty. Yeah. I can see your points in that. Like like I'm saying, I think. If Sweden are able to, like, I think their strategy into this match will be to frustrate England, to hold them back, yeah. to defend through their teeth. And if they start getting late into the match and it's still nil all or it's with, it's a draw, I think England, that's when you start worrying about England and them defeating themselves, or at least defeating themselves to the point that it drifts into extra time and then it drifts towards penalties. And I think, you know, you can say what you want about the English they've overcome their penalty hoodoo by beating Colombia in a penalty shootout blah 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 I don't think it's over by any stretch of the imagination I think that penalty hoodoo is still there and I think they have a awful long they need to do this for tournament after tournament for it to be a re- but yeah sure it was the same with the Netherlands in 2014 they they have a similarly terrible record yeah. on penalty shootouts and they beat Costa Rica and then they went and lost to Argentina on penalties yeah like that shows everything um, you want to know yeah. about it. Like it, it's not it's not the easiest thing to do to get rid of it. You don't get rid of it overnight, and you know, yeah. It. I. I. I think England. England will obviously be my favourites for this to get into the semi final. The first semi final since nineteen ninety. The first World Cup semi final that is since nineteen ninety. Yeah, I, I. I know what you mean about Sweden and them challenging everybody. And, you know, really fighting for this match and playing on the counter-attack and capitalising on the inexperience of the English defence and really putting them under pressure. I, I, I still think England will probably win this. They'll have too much in attack. You know, they did provide, England did provide a bit of useful attacking play. Little bits of it against Colombia. Like they played, if you remember, Harry Kane kept coming very deep and almost playing as a... I wouldn't say false nine because he didn't go forward again. He played as a 10, basically. He dropped very deep and then tried to create space on the inside channels for Lingard and for Sterling. I don't think it worked very well against Colombia. I think the defenders had the best of it. But that pace could do a lot against Sweden, although I think Sweden will pay like five yards away from their keeper for most of the match. So maybe not. 
And then the thing as well is like England went to 120 minutes and like like Harry Kane could barely walk. Yeah. Kyle Walker limped off the pitch. Like Sweden, apparently got 90 yeah. minutes. Apparently, what you call him, uh, Jamie Vardy, the backup for Harry Kane, or the, the yeah, apparently he's he injured, didn't yeah. take a penalty because he was injured, or maybe he psychologically wouldn't take a penalty. Who knows? Yeah, like uh, what did Gareth Southgate said it was like mash. He thought it was like a you know mobile hospital in the in the changing room afterwards. They a lot to take from it. Yeah, like. As you say, Kyle Walker getting cramp in both legs doesn't look good. You know, players like Harry Maguire and John Stones running like mad for 120 minutes because they're covering the ground of defensive midfielders as well as defenders. Probably not good if they have to play in four days' time against a, a team which will pounce and counterattack at will whenever they're given the opportunity. And these players will have to be, you know, have the recovery speed there and ready to go to beat those defenders, the beat those attacking players to the ball. So, what is it? See, Jordan Pickford's in form, so they have that going for them. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that is a slight advantage. But I think I think of the quarterfinals, this is the hardest. Oh to yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I'd say it probably is. This and the other one we're about to discuss are probably the hardest two to call, which happen to be on the same side of the of the tournament. Yeah, Russia Croatia then is the final quarterfinal. It's on seven o'clock on Saturday evening and. Like it's it's a weird one because like I would have preferred Spain Croatia just because I think that's two titans and uh, like Russia are a weird side and obviously as hosts there's a slight advantage yeah, there absolutely but Croatia like Croatia should win this match like everything points to the fact that Croatia should beat Russia. Yeah, but I'm still not overly confident. Of the well, moment. two things: one, Croatia seemed to have flounder under the pressure against Denmark extremely, where Denmark obviously scored very early. Croatia immediately equalised, and then it was kind of Croatia's game for a lot of it. But then near the end of the match, Denmark came flying back into it, and we're like, "No, we're actually as good as you. We're not afraid of you and your little central midfielders." And Denmark had the better of a lot of that match against them in the last sixteen. They got unlucky in the end in, in losing the penalty shootout, but. Croatia kind of showed a lot of their age as that match went on. Like uh, Perisic had to be taken off, if you remember, who isn't the oldest in that midfield by any stretch. Rakitic, I I was like, did they take Rakitic off? Between, I think he was fouled in the second half until his penalty in the shootout that won it. I was like, oh, Rakitic must be gone because he was like, to that point, he hadn't taken a penalty. Where's Rakitic? I don't see him at all. And all through extra time, through all of that, no sign of Rakitic at all. He was completely anonymous. And like Modric was there, but you see he was out on his feet. He was making poor calls. He obviously missed the penalty, took a terrible penalty. Scored in a shootout, but he missed the important penalty in extra time. You know, there's a lot of yellow cards in this Croatia team, which kind of shows both their nervousness and their, you know, probably shows a kind of lack of pace or lack of, you know, recovery in their play. That they're fouling the rather with- than, you know, tracking back to, to stop a move. They're ending the move early so to avoid any defensive frailties their keeper is yet to but be the tested the thing with that though Go on. the thing the thing with the fouls though is they committed far more fouls in the group stages than they did against Denmark they only committed five fouls against Denmark like they're wise to the fact that they all have yellow cards yeah but now so how many do, how I, many I are there now like be, six players with yellow cards going into this match yeah but I don't think that that will be a, a, a one or two of them might pick up a yellow card but I don't think that will be that big of a problem against well Russia. my point being is that the players that have yellow cards and some of the other players might be cautious and they won't make those fouls that were stopping moves in earlier matches and then you suddenly see them being opened up this is the Russia side that runs more than any other team in the tournament their players have amazing stats for running they're covering a huge amount of kilometres in every match 
and this is an elderly, slow, very talented, very technically gifted Croatia side. Obviously better player for player than the Russia side, but they're slow. And will they be able to do it? There's a bit of a grudge here between Russia and Croatia, and there, you know, there could be a bit of trouble at the ground as well. We'll see how the authorities handle that. And But the Russians, they have home advantage. They have everyone behind them, obviously, with that home advantage. They have a lot more pace. They're the more exciting team, almost, because they're the home side, because they have all these youthful runners in the team, because they have these standout stars that nobody really heard of before the tournament. You know, uh, I give them a chance against Croatia. Croatia would be my favourites in this to win in normal time. But Russia beat Spain. If they beat Spain, they can beat anybody. I don't think... Uh, I don't know about that. Like, I think Croatia won't make the same mistakes that Spain will make. I think Croatia will actually not just pass the ball around themselves. They'll actually have shots. Like, they'll actually try and score. Yeah. Which Spain seemingly did not do. What was it? A thousand over a thousand passes, and only fourteen of them were. Yeah, it's a terrible sad. Like they weren't getting any like service. That, Croatia, Croatia are not making that mistake. They will get the ball to Mazukic. Rabic will be there. Perisic will be there. And like Perisic can cross a ball. He's very good yeah. at it. I think that he, that will be used. I think Modric and Rakitic will be able to control midfield pretty handily. And obviously they have uh, Brozovic as well, who can run around and win the ball back if they have any problems. Yeah, they have phenom- they have a phenomenal team, player for player. Technically speaking, the skill, the touch, the vision of the players they have is ten times better than the the, the same comparable players in the Russian side. But the Russians have that kind of spark with them, that look, that bit of form, that je ne sais quoi about them at this point in the tournament. Maybe that Genesee Qua rhymes with, you know, blood moping. Who knows? Well, if they do win, I think there'll be a lot more attention thrown onto Russia. And, like, how exactly have they got to the semifinals after being the worst team in Euro 2016? You know, that that still is yet to be answered. If they go out at the corner final phase, everyone's going to be, oh, well, fair play to them. They did. They did. Yeah, I think everyone everyone will accept a quarterfinal. Yeah, no one's going to, like, question. I think any further, everyone It's going to look a bit dodgy. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Especially considering their um, last few years in athletics. Yeah, uh, that's def- that's definitely a, a black cloud hanging over Russia, fo- Russian sport at the moment. But I think with Croatia, I think they just they should they, just they should better. have enough to win this tournament to not win this tournament to win this tie to to lose this match would be a huge missed opportunity yeah. for Croatia. But they've done a, it before, like an embarrassment. Croatia have done it before. A lot of these players they have, I mean, even some of them that are playing, like Luka Modric was in that 2008 side. I think I don't know, Rakitic might have been as well. Yeah, Rak- they both missed. Korluka, yeah, like there's a there's players that are sitting in the squads that played in 2008 against Turkey, where it was a huge opportunity not only to win that tie and get to the was it the semi-finals. It would have been the same. Yeah, yeah, like they could have easily won that tournament. Easily. So Spain were still in that tournament, though. So I think a final was definitely doable yeah. there. I don't know if they would have gone on to win it, but like that, even in Euro 2016, it was the same case. Yeah. Like they w- were against a, a Portugal side that drew their three group matches yeah. in what was a relatively easy group, and they couldn't break them down at all. And then they yeah. conceded at the end of extra time. Like it was a huge waste. And I hope they don't make that same mistake here because. It's always sad to see teams of quality completely collapse yeah. under the pressure. Uh, and I, I think that they should get to the semi-final. And then from there, I think it'll be much harder to tell. what. Like It's it's so weird that one of England, Sweden, Russia and Croatia will be in the final. I know. It is, uh, God, when you actually say it like that, 
it is amazing. Could yeah. you imagine, like, not to say anything against England or any of the other teams in this, could you imagine Sweden in the World Cup final for the first time since 1958? Could you imagine a Sweden-Brazil rematch? Yeah, it's like 60 years yeah. on, is it? That would be crazy. Yeah, that that would be crazy. I'd love to see Sweden get to the final just out of spite for Zlatan. Yeah, that would be funny on Zlatan and all his visa ads. Yeah, especially because like before the tournament or even during the tournament, I think he said, I was like, oh, this team would be better with Zlatan. And I was like, just go back to MLS. Yeah. Like, poor Zlatan. Maybe he's feeling left out. No, not poor Zlatan. No, I have no sympathy for him. Mm. It's interesting. It, it will so, be that is an interesting thought to leave it on. Almost that one of England, Russia, Croatia, or Sweden will be in the World Cup final. That is an amazing thought. So, well, I don't think any of so, us could have predicted that at the beginning of the tournament. So, who do you think will be in the semi final? I think it's going to be England against Croatia on one side, and I think it'll be Brazil against France. Interesting. I'm going to go with Uruguay, Belgium, and Sweden. <laughs> Just go for for the crowd. Okay. No, I, I genuinely think that those results could happen. Uh, you know, so it, it shows how open yeah. the quarterfinal is. But on both sides, that, absolutely. That Russia seemed the only team that will definitely lose. I know. I'll say Russia if you want me to. <laughs> no, no, no. Just we'll for the just for the crack. Uh, so that will do us here for our, our quarterfinal previews. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it's as good as the rest of the tournament has been because. Even the last 16 was quality. I well, think. don't you know, Declan? It's coming home. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've, end, let, let I've them, ruined everything now. Phone. I've ruined yeah. everything. Ugh, just cancel this podcast. Hashtag it's coming home uh, is the name of this ca- podcast. Cancel the World Cup. Um, oh, my laptop decided to do something weird there. Um, but yeah, uh, follow us on Instagram at Pod. follow us on Twitter at the TF Pod. don't be afraid to email in with your thoughts on the World Cup and your predictions at the tfpod at gmail.com and uh, subscribe to the show rate and review tell family and friends about it you know the more the merrier as we always say we always and, say that and uh, that just leaves <laughs> we do in we fairness do. or at least I do you do um, so that just leaves me to say thank you for being here thank Andrew. you Declan and uh, thank you for listening au revoir